You are listening to 91.9 WDRT Radio Free Space Viroqua, and this is the Conscious Bro Show. Hello, everybody. My name is William Kyle Glenn. I go by Kyle, and sitting next to me is my guest today, uh, second time I've had him on, Robert Karbelnikov. Goes by Robert Karp. Hey, Kyle. (laughs) Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you again. Um, We got a really um, exciting topic to talk about. I've been... Um, counting the days to where I've been able to have them on and go over this information. But today we're going to talk about um, a concept, a social concept um, that Rudolf Steiner came up with called social threefolding. Um, well, uh, how about, do you want to just explain what that is, Robert? Sure, Kyle. So, um, well, Rudolf Steiner, um, who lived from 1861 to 1925, so he lived through the First World War um, as a European. He was an Austrian. And as you may know, you know, the First World War was absolutely devastating event for European culture, for Western civilization. It just um, was like an implosion. And um, at that time, Rudolf Steiner was already a well-known spiritual teacher at that time. And um, some individuals came to him and said, well, what? were the causes of this war and what could we do to prevent another war like it? And that led Rudolf Steiner to begin to describe the threefold nature of society and um, the fact that as human beings, we need to become more conscious of the threefold nature of society so that we can move society in a healthy direction so that we begin to foster health within society. And anyway, that's the historical origin point of social threefolding. It became quite a movement for a period of time in Central Europe. Um, But as we all know, well, that movement was not able to prevent World War II, (laughs) even though they made a heroic attempt um, to do so. But it still lives on today, and people are practicing social social threefolding um, in communities, in organizations, um, in a lot of different ways all over the world. Awesome, Robert. So correct me if if I'm wrong here, but um, Steiner talks about how we each as human beings have a threefold nature as well. We have body, soul, and spirit. That's correct. Correct. And so when we're talking about social threefolding, we're really talking about the same body, soul, and spirit, except for applied to a community. Yeah. The, <clears throat> excuse me. The fact that we are threefold beings means that human society <clears throat> is a reflection of our threefoldness, and it has it has three primary aspects to it. So you can you can see these three primary aspects of society. You know, in any human society, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, from 10,000 years ago or whether it's communist or capitalist or socialist. Um, Every society reflects this threefoldness. So if you want, I can give you just a quick kind of summary of this this threefoldness. Um, So basically, in every... From this perspective, in every human society, we see three functions. Some people, some anthropologists call this trifunctionalism because there's three functions, main functions happening in every society, okay? So one of those functions is the meeting of human needs, 
Okay, so human beings need food and shelter and clothing and various things in order to survive on this planet. And so the meeting of human needs is one of the primary functions of society. And in our age, people talk about that as the economic life, the production and distribution of goods and services in order to live a human life. Okay, so that's one of these functions. Most people associate that with the bodily function of the human being. We have, we have bodily needs, right? And the body of the earth. And too. the body of the earth. We're talking about resources exactly. from the earth. Exactly. So, in addition, all human societies, virtually all of them, uh, have some form of rulemaking, of commonly held laws, or some form of protection. So, even societies that existed before laws and the way we understand it came into being, there was the function of protection. Somehow, there was a there was an a warrior class who protected the community mm -hmm. and that evolved into what we now know as our 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 state our governments and and in in social threefolding we talk about that as the rights life now it's that it's the function in society where we make agreements that are necessary in order to live together as a community and in order to protect one another's uh, rights and so that would reflect the soul. Correct. That's that's a reflection of of our soul nature of what we have in common with everyone else. We all we all have a soul, we all have a striving, and we all have a desire to live in a community where we have an equal voice, you could say. Okay, so like each person's soul is I guess respected and honored. Or? Yes. Yeah, there's a, I mean if you look at the the whole principle of lawmaking, it's about how do, we, how do we honor and respect every member of society. Of course, not every society is able to accomplish this, but that's the striving around law, community agreements. Cool. Um, yeah. And then the third function you see in every society is you could call the function of meaning-making or the function of um, individual development, of the, the, those processes by which we realize our inherent potential and bring our gifts to the world and find meaning and health. And um, in social threefolding, this is called the cultural function within society. And so in the cultural domain, um, we're all very, very different, and we all want to pursue very different paths and different worldviews and different belief systems and different healers and <laughs> um, and so this this part of society um, really thrives when there's a lot of freedom for people to explore who they are who they want to become wow okay so I'm hearing uh, we have the cultural life which thrives in freedom we have the political life which thrives when everyone's um, honored and respected and equal and equal opportunity. Yes. And then we have the econ economic life where it's about um, meeting people's needs and sharing. Yeah. And in, in social threefolding, we speak of um, the ideal of um, cooperation, 
collaboration. Some people call it fraternity. But that, even though in the West we've come to very strongly associate the economic life with competition, if you actually dig into the tissue of what happens day to day in the economic life, there's far more cooperation going on than competition. That's true. I mean, I've noticed it. Like in any one business, you know how many businesses it takes to like run one business? Exactly. You're like buying so many things. Exactly. From... Supply chains are all about cooperation. Well, they, they should be. Unfortunately, they've been infused with a lot of competition. But so, yeah, the ideal of social threefolding is how can we create a more cooperative, uh, fraternal form of, of an economy and how can we infuse our political governmental um, function with the principle of equality and how can we create a robust and vibrant cultural life that's inspired by the principle of freedom yeah so a lot of these almost almost sound like paradoxes like how do you, how do you balance how do you balance it all how can you sh how can you have freedom here? and then share resources here over, you know what I mean? Yeah, precisely. There, there is a paradox about it. And if you look historically, um, you can see that um, a lot of responsibility has wound up getting nested into the state. That, that, that people have wound up looking for the state to carry a lot of responsibility. But slowly... Um, both the culture and economy have begun to establish their own domains independent of the state. And so, for example, you know, um, freedom of church and state, right? Something that happened um, in the in through the American Revolution and through through the establishment of the Constitution. This was a this was new territory to give people complete religious freedom. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, you're asking, well, how can we have this complete freedom culturally and at the same time um, learn to practice community and cooperation at the economic level? Um, so I would just point out that, you know, altruism. So we could also talk about altruism in the economic life. Okay, that's ultimately... A cultural value right so you can see in our time there is a kind of worldwide awakening to the fact that the planet is limited we have is limit, that we need to find is that what altruism is what can you define altruism is the capacity to um, care about others as much as one cares about oneself okay um, the capacity to see the world from the perspective of everyone's needs and not just my needs and you can see that we live in a time where this is waking up in more and more people. The awareness, my God, the planet is limited. Um, look at how many resources the developed countries are using compared to, you know, the less developed countries. So th there is an awakening of conscience, and this is part of culture in a certain way. The question is, how can the economy become infused with this cultural impulse of altruism? And unfortunately, a lot of people, their first go-to with this thought is, well, the state has to then direct the economy. 
this is a classic socialist right. or communist turn. It's like, well, people will people will necessarily be ruthless and egotistical in the economic life, and so the state must step in and enforce some kind of ethical behavior. But from the standpoint of social threefolding, and honestly, just look out at the world. What's the cutting edge of business right now? It's it's triple bottom line businesses. I mean, thought, well, triple bottom line reference to people, profit, and planet. Oh, it's it's people who are starting businesses not just to make money. They're starting businesses in which they want to create a product that people actually need that's of value, in which they want to provide dignified employment for people, in which they want to use the resources to make those products in a sustainable way and pay a fair price for them. Like there's a lot of people starting um, businesses now out of the cultural value of altruism. And I, I've even I saw an article one time years ago though that was saying that that was actually businesses that were doing that were actually starting to be more profitable because people were wanting to buy their products more. It's true. No, they're they're some of the more successful businesses now. I can hear some of your listeners thinking, yeah, but there's a lot of greenwashing going on. There's a lot of people people acting like they're sustainable to make a few extra dollars. And I don't argue that there's always a shadow side of these developments. But what's important to my mind, what these developments show is that we can create a sustainable altruistic economy without the state having to somehow impose it or take on the means of production. We do need some role for laws and lawmaking in the economy. Steiner actually had some pretty revolutionary things to say about that. But um, it's not about the state owning it. We need the state to be focused on rights, on yeah. upholding equal human rights, and not get the state involved in running the economy. Well, correct. That, that's how the original Constitution was written out, right? I mean, wasn't it just focused on rights? Um, well, for the most part. Yeah, although <laughs> the Bill of Rights, I mean, it opened the door. There, there was nothing preventing the government from getting very involved mm. in economic life. And, and that's how we got to where we are today, where, you know, our government is so very involved um, in certain ways in the economic life. In other ways, the government could be more involved, actually. So it's it's a complicated picture. But then, I'm trying to understand this, so yeah. then just pure capitalism, like unfettered, that would, that seems to be more of like based on freedom. Right, like freedom to just to to do whatever. Yeah. So, if you look at um, the polarity, you could say between the left and the right. Okay, mm. in our current political spectrum. So, I would say the left wing, the liberal community, tends to be very sensitive to these economic issues of cooperation and altruism. However, they tend to want the state to somehow impose that or make that happen. Or, mm. On the right, we tend to have a great appreciation for the value of freedom, but that freedom is often applied all the way down into the economic life in a way that isn't totally healthy. Like, like let's just take the idea that just because I own a piece of property somewhere, I should be able to do whatever the hell I want with that property, even if that involves polluting the water or exploiting the resources of that property like this idea of untrammeled freedom for owners of property 
is not a healthy application of the principle of freedom because it's one thing to have freedom to express your your viewpoints or to pursue a particular spiritual path but it's another thing to make use of our common earth in a way that degrades it so there really should be limits to freedom when you're you're making use of the limited resources of the earth so uh, to understand what you're saying um when it's something that's limited like the land that's where it's like it's not as much about freedom because that's everyone's affected there's only so much land there's only so much resources where you got to learn to cooperate and share in those regards but when it's something like unlimited like ideas or spirituality where there aren't those same limits then that's where art that's where freedom comes in and shines in those regards i think that's a good way to put it kyle yes um and these things are just um you know easy to get mixed up like i'll just give you an example from the domain of education okay so many people in our time feel a lack of cohesiveness in the culture right we've become a very fragmented country compared to even 50 years ago america was more homogenous now america's become so diverse so individualized there's all these little subcultures and subgroups. And that leads some people to think uh, that, you know, public education, public schools are, are so important because they're going to somehow create a sense of cohesive values. If all children go to the same schools and get taught the same curriculum, um, we will have cohesiveness in society. And from a social three-folding standpoint, that's not generally how it works, actually. Like, culturally, we want the greatest possible freedom and independence for people. And if that's allowed, people's humanity, people's desire for community, their sense of commonality will come forth because the commonality between us doesn't have to be imposed. It's in us. Mm -hmm. We don't have to impose commonality. And it just is there. And we should give the cultural life its wings. We should let the greatest diversity of educational uh, options and religious options and healing options, you know, medical options. We should really give pe people are ready to have freedom in those areas. I agree. Um, and the question of finding commonality has to come through a different pathway again than the government somehow imposing it through a public school curriculum, for example. Oh, well, you're listening to 91.9 WDRT, Radio Free Space, Viroqua, and this is The Conscious Bro Show. I'm here with my guest, Robert Karbelnikov, and we were talking about Rudolf Steiner and his philosophy about social threefolding um, and how to create a healthy society, basically, by honoring the three aspects of it. Um, so to kind of, it seems like, you know, we, there's a lot of work to even just to grasp like these three natures and just decide like, and to understand where we are in honoring each of these three natures, because it seems like everything's all like mixed up in one blob. Like the, do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like the, um, you know, either the cultural life is take the, 
the way that you have a healthy cultural life is like taking over the economic life and the political life or the way that you're supposed to have a, economic, a healthy economic life is taking over these other it's like everybody's out of their lane and that's what it feels like to me it's true we we lack clarity about these three functions and about where does freedom belong i'll give you another classic example um many people are aware of the supreme court decision called citizens united and this was this was when the supreme court decided that that contributions to political campaigns were a form of free speech that they were an expression of free speech now this is just you know a blatant error in thinking okay so the political realm thrives on the principle of equality um what we need in the political realm is is political campaigns in which basically everyone has pretty much the same amount of money to work with. Like the idea that we would let money drive elections to the degree we have and associate that somehow with the principle of freedom. I mean, it's just muddy thinking, you know. The, the founding fathers never intended to associate freedom, in my opinion, with you know, the use of money to drive political outcomes, right? So, I mean, just imagine a different kind of political process in which, you know, every candidate has basically the same amount of money for their candidacy. I mean, there's a lot of reforms needed, I guess I'm saying, not only in, in the economic life or the cultural life, but in our political life, how we carry out democracy. Wow. And then yeah, I heard you say free speech in there. You know, I'm just thinking speech, that you use speech to um, communicate an idea. So that seems to be a healthy expression of, uh, of culture, right? To be able to, to express speech. Oh, I think so. I mean, I think this was the, the genius at the founding of America was this understanding that human beings were ready to live in a society that gave them a great deal of freedom, uh, culturally and so speech is one of them practice of religion is is one of them um you know i think the bill of rights is an incredible watershed moment in civilization and it, it needs to be extended it needs to be further developed an understanding of what is freedom and where where does it belong right on so yeah let's let's hammer out let's, let's get clear on what culture is then you know, one aspect of this that that has to do with freedom, because you're yes. saying because you're saying spiritual beliefs has to do with culture. I think you said schooling has to do with culture, um, speech. Why is that culture, and what else belongs in the cultural realm? Well, let's yeah, let's step back for a minute. Culture is a, a, of these three domains. Culture is the most amorphous, right? I mean, people have if you talk well, you know, what's the economy? People have some pretty concrete pictures of that. If you talk about the government, um, culture tends to be more amorphous. And, you know, part of what we're doing in social threefolding is try to make it more clear so that culture, culture can really bring its contribution. You know, one thing I said at the recent workshop we held here in Baroque was, you know, 
Like, let's take a look at Viroqua. Look at the incredible role that culture has played in the growth of, of this community. Now, in this case, I'm just defining culture as, you know, the arts and spirituality and, and the care for the environment. Um, those three things alone um, have done a lot to make this a kind of destination. Um, the force of culture, of interesting, interesting um, types of businesses and cultural venues and um, recreational opportunities. All that is an expression of culture. But how can culture be at the table when we go to make decisions here in the future? You know, when city council and chamber of commerce and these, these leadership bodies have their meetings, where does culture show up in those meetings? So that's a question that I think is important, Kyle. But let's, let's come back to your question for a minute here. What, what do we mean by culture? So from the standpoint of social threefolding, there's a couple of different ways that we talk about culture. In the first place, culture is the invisible dimension of the whole of society, meaning it's the attitudes and norms and beliefs and worldviews that are functioning in any given society in a certain way those things are, we see the expression of those, but they themselves, they're invisible. They're the, the human motivation, human striving. In a way, all of that is culture. Um, but the domain of culture is any institution or informal activity that's associated with human development, human caring, human self-expression um you know so research knowledge development so the whole realm of research is is a cultural activity um healing and medicine is a cultural activity education is a cultural activity religious life is a cultural activity the arts is a cultural activity. A lot of what nonprofit organizations do, the whole idea of a nonprofit organization, right, which is really, you know, Peter Drucker is the one who started calling them, I think it was Peter Drucker, third sector organizations. Already this language was showing up that the nonprofit's neither part of the economy, it's also not part of the government, it's an NGO, non governmental organization, it's part of the third sector of society. And so it's this culture is, you could say, it's the third sector where all of this other work gets done that isn't done by the government and the economy. I mean, a neighborhood association is a kind of cultural organ mm -hmm. as well. The family, I mean, in speaking in a very traditional sense, family is not a governmental entity. It's not an economic. It's not an entity of the economic life in a classical sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Thank you. So then you're saying in order to keep this aspect of the social life healthy is to just allow freedom, freedom for it to just be what it is and express itself in the community. I think that's one aspect of it. I don't think freedom alone um, is sufficient, but as far as the culture's relation to the state, I would say it's very important my standpoint that the state begin to recognize culture as a realm 
unto itself and to to provide freedom in that realm more and more for human beings but for culture itself to thrive I mean I'll just give you an example that came out in this recent workshop that we did that that was really helpful so you could say we have a lot of polarization in society right now we have a lot of mistrust between different groups and um, and so what we have is a lot of subcultures that don't know enough about each other absolutely and therefore they don't trust each other and there's a lot of segregation happening in society and it's not just racially it's not just happening along racial lines it's happening along cultural lines and so I think if for culture to thrive, we need venues where people get to know other subcultures and, um, and have the opportunity to form relationships with other subcultures. Or um, I'm also really interested in debates, like creating healthy debate formats where people of different viewpoints come together and debate things in a civil way, right? We've lost the capacity for civil dialogue in society. So I think culture, to be healthy, needs actually a lot more than freedom. Freedom is a kind of a prerequisite that I think culture needs. But it also needs a sensitivity to the need for dialogue, the need for relationality. Well, you need to understand yeah. people, right? Because why should I want to give other people freedom if I don't understand them, if I don't value them? Well, and I think that's the worry here is that the, the freedom is dangerous. Like some people, some cultures are promoting dangerous ideas that could cause harm to people. So we need to have the government like get rid of those ideas, right? We need to fact check them. We got to get their nuts not scientific that, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, <clears throat> you know, you're leading right into the culture wars, essentially. And, you know, if we ask, really, what is the culture war? Um, because, so one of, the, one of the radical things Steiner said was that the place for competition in a threefold society actually is the cultural life, not the economic life, is that... In the cultural life, it's natural for different ideas and different worldviews to be in a kind of competition with one another. I mean, you could even argue, you know, the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Catholics are in a subtle form of competition <laughs> with each other. Um, but, but the culture wars happen around when different cultural groups, and I would argue that political parties are also cultural groups actually even though they're framed as part of part of the rights state they're really cultural groups it's when different culture groups want to control the government in order to impose cultural values on the rest of the population and this has become rife now on both the left and the right i mean they they both want to gain control of the government, to impose values on everybody else because they they think that the values of the other group are dangerous. Yeah. And so they have to be suppressed. They should be rightfully suppressed. And um, 
it's a tragic situation and not particularly healthy. <laughs> Put it mildly. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point you're making. How can you expand on how a political party would be cultural? Well, because political parties are formed around certain values. And um, in the first place, yes, they're trying to achieve political outcomes. But what brings people together in a political party are certain values, certain norms, certain lifestyle preferences, even, you could say. And so they bond together to try to promote those values. And it would again, it would be one thing, you know, if they were just trying to promote certain cultural values, you know, uh, promote the cultural value of freedom or promoting altruism in the economic life. But unfortunately, they have gone way beyond that. They're, they're trying to gain control of the government to, as I see it, to impose their values in one way or another. Um, and I think it's gotten out of hand. I would agree. Is there ever a time to suppress an idea? Like, I mean, what if, I'm just throw some random example. What if there's a group of people like promoting, like, like abusing another group of people or like killing another group of people? Like, I mean, I guess that's an idea, but that's, that would probably be a pretty dangerous idea, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say there's never a time to suppress something. And yet, um, we have to ask um, about the harm done through suppression itself. And whether, like, let me give you an example. In France, it's illegal. It is illegal to question the Holocaust. Okay? Illegal to question it. It's illegal to question the Holocaust. I don't even know what that means, but go ahead. It means to... So there's groups of people who question the facts of the Holocaust. Right, right. They, they, they say there's no way that that many Jewish people were killed or et cetera, et cetera, okay? Just like, you know, now we have people questioning the moon landing and things mm. like that, okay? In France, it's actually illegal to question the Holocaust. And in America, it's not. And in France, there's way more questioners of the Holocaust than there are in America. So you see, the moment the state suppresses something in the name of the good, it also makes people very suspicious. Like, imagine if America said, you know, it's illegal to question the moon landing. Yeah. I mean, like, first of all, like, that would just make a lot of people go, going on here there must be something going on and all the mm -hmm. conspiracy people would just be fueled to no end by such a law so i mean um you know the best way to fight you know and there are pockets within society of a disease of cancer right i mean we have social cancers and they show up in very different ways there are pockets still of intense racism, of, you know, various views of the world and other people that some of us would consider to be really terrible. But, you know, I'm not sure that going after these worldviews and trying to suppress them is going to accomplish anything other than possibly flaming them and making them stronger. 
like it's of course when somebody crosses a line and they actually try to hurt someone else then we have laws then it's in the political realm then then they've broken one of our common laws mm-hmm. um if they're just talking about it um i'm not sure that the best way to you know the best way to do something about that is to promote a different set of yeah, yeah a better a better idea that makes that idea a better look in, exactly exactly it's a battle of ideas and values let's keep it there in the so, first so in that regard you would need more speech you know more conversation about it rather than like limiting it put, like sweeping it under the table totally yeah let's 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 you know, invite those people, invite someone into a debate where, you know, one can really see the foolishness of these ideas. Like, let's bring it into the light rather than demonize people. And, you know, we've very strong tendency right now to want to demonize people, to, mm-hmm. to, to want to cancel them or what have you without really examining who they are and how they arrived at those beliefs and I don't think it's how we create a healthier society by trying to cancel or demonize or suppress ideas we don't agree with. Um, I think it it fosters exactly the opposite of what we want. So the, yeah, this, so that gets into political correctness too, and and cancel culture a little bit. It does. It absolutely does. And again, I think um, you know, for example, you just. The racial question, um, when I lived in New York City as a young person, I had so much contact with people of other cultures. And it was that contact itself that really um, opened my mind and filled me with love and compassion for all people. But when, you know... Right now, I would say through political correctness, people are actually afraid to have conversations, to have relationships with people of different cultures. They think that they're going to say something wrong or do something wrong, or they don't have the right to be in a relationship with this person. You know, and to me, that gets in the way of human beings learning to love other people. You have to be in a relationship. And the fact that there are pockets of racism in our society, to me, just says, there's pockets of people who haven't had a chance to be in genuine relationship with somebody of other culture or race. Let's give them the opportunity. Let's create, that's a cultural task to create opportunities rather than a political task to somehow suppress their ideas. We can't suppress someone's idea. You can't stop somebody from thinking something unless you, I don't know, give them a lobotomy. i i heard a story i wish i knew more about it but it was basically about a black guy um well known that uh kind of undercover dressed up in a ku klux klan outfit whatever and befriended a lot of people within the 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 kkk and then later on when and when he like made it himself known that he was black he got like multiple people to renounce their involvement in it because they they couldn't believe have you heard this story before I I know of people who've gone out of their way, um, both both black people and white people, to befriend people in the Klan um, and really help enlighten them mm-hmm. uh, through the through the friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, friendship's the most powerful way to bring transformation into society. Um, 
And that's what I think we want to give wings to in the cultural life is that kind of courageous friendship. And reaching across cultural lines, racial Reaching lines. across class lines, race lines, cultural lines. I mean, that's what we want. Um, and at the same time, we can't prevent the fact that people also are going to want to form their, their groups. And that's okay, too, you know? Like, again, I believe in the freedom of the educational life. So I believe if there's groups of Native Americans or African Americans or Italian Americans or whomever that want to form a school for their group, let them. If they have an audience for that and that's what they want to do, I mean, I don't think we should stop that. In fact, that's a tragedy of our public system right now is Native Americans have often been prevented from teaching their own language in their schools, teaching right. their mythology in their schools. You know, it's the irony is the same people who want, you know, to give Native Americans that freedom don't want to give conservative Christians the freedom to start their own schools and teach what they're going to teach. Well, I'm sorry. If we're going to have freedom, we're going to have freedom. And it means that some schools, some people are going to teach things that you don't agree with. That's called culture. Right on. Well, you're listening to 91.9 WDRT, Radio Free Space, Viroqua. And this is The Conscious Bro Show. I'm sitting here with my guest, Robert Karbelnikov, and we're really diving into culture and what it takes to have a healthy culture through the concept of uh, Rudolf Steiner's social threefolding. But we were just talking about um, schooling, mm -hmm. right? And there is a movement, I think it happened in Arizona, where um, they were actually going to let the same money that you get that the government gives to public schools, they would give to a, a individual family and they could choose whatever school they wanted. Have you heard about that? Well, that's happening all over. That's happening in Wisconsin as well. Oh, is it? We have a voucher program in Wisconsin. These are very controversial programs. Um, yeah. In which the state will, you know, if you meet the income guidelines in Wisconsin, um, you can, get a voucher to take to any school of your choice. I think um, that's great. The problem with it, Kyle, um, is that because it happens through the state, um, the state is now gaining influence over independent schools because they're saying, hey, look, you know, half your kids are coming through our vouchers. Therefore, you need to take our standardized tests. Oh, you need to. Geez, there's always a catch. You need to demonstrate. So in social threefolding, there's been an effort to look at how can we bring money directly into the cultural life without it all having to go through the state. The government. And it, I think in Arizona, actually, is where they've set up these associations. I can't remember what they're called now. I think they were originally called scholarship associations, where businesses and individuals could donate money into a scholarship association and, and have a dollar for dollar tax credit for that. So um, they could basically divert money from their state and federal taxes straight into these scholarship associations. And that has led to like very large sums of money um, being given to private schools where the state, the money never passes through the state, so the state doesn't have control over it. So it's a, it's a complicated and controversial landscape, but there's a lot of people working for educational freedom. And um, to me, it's kind of sad that a lot of liberal-minded people think of this as uh, a kind of um, conservative, um, or even 
think of it as a privatization of the educational sector. Now, I, I would agree, personally, I don't think schools should be able to be for-profit. I actually think all schools should be required by the state. I think it's appropriate role for the state to decide what kind of legal entities can do different things. So to me, that's an appropriate state role. And it, to me, it would be appropriate for the state to say, if you want to start a school, you have to be a nonprofit organization. It's not a for-profit activity to make money off teaching children. But I don't, I don't see... Anyway, to me, it's unfortunate that the idea of educational choice has taken on partisan color and people think, oh, it's a Republican thing. They want to privatize schools, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's just um, a necessary and helpful thing for for culture and for human civilization right now to have that kind of freedom. Right on. What what about health? Uh, from what I think I've heard you say, health is also in the realms of culture, right? Totally. Totally. And I think with health, we have to start with looking at the incredible sums of money that the government puts into research related to health. And to me, this is, this is where a lot of the problems start. Like research is not an appropriate activity of the, the government, um, much less an appropriate thing for the government to fund. I don't think government should be funding research because the way our society is set up right now, it's so easy for various economic interests to then influence government funding. And there's huge yeah. government funding in the area of medical research. I mean, enormous. And so, but in general, I would say, yeah, to me, it's if we had a proper health care system or health insurance system, um, I think we would all be reimbursed for whatever whatever choices we chose to make. Like, I mean, I go to an acupuncturist. That's not reimbursed by my health insurance. But if I go to a conventional doctor to have a checkup, a part of that is reimbursed. Like, to me, that's just silly. And like, that is, that's an economic institution or the government deciding? I'm just trying to orient it within this framework. Well, in that case, it's the government deciding what's genuine health care mm. and what isn't. So the government's making our own cultural decisions for us. I would say so. I would say so. It's telling us, it's creating laws around how health insurance's monies are handed out. or, But in some cases, perhaps private health insurance companies are doing the same thing. Um they're just limiting what's acceptable health care. So science would be culture too then? Correct? Absolutely. Because that's where we kind of, uh, what's popular today is, is like this is science, this isn't science. Yes. And since this isn't science, we can like suppress it and it's dangerous, but this is science. So this is what gets the funding. This is what we can promote. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I think it's, I mean, I think it's a very slippery slope. Um, a lot of what's being done in the name of a science-based approach um, is highly problematic when looked at from a standpoint of like, I would say from a holistic health standpoint. I mean, our country has got 
I don't know what, more people in hospitals, more people ill, more people on drugs of one kind or another than any other country in the world. And the life expectancies went down. It's going down. And we pride ourselves on being science-based, science-based, science-based everywhere. But the science points in in a different direction. The true science, I would say. I mean, okay, now I'm using that language. True science. (laughs) So this is the problem with science. I mean, that's why it needs to be part of culture, not part of government, because... One man's science is another man's loony bin. I don't know what Oh my is. God, have we ever seen that during this pandemic? <laughs> totally. Like one people, each, everybody's claiming to have the real science. And it's just like, it's all different. Everyone claims to know and everyone's standing on a different mountain, sharing a different philosophy, saying that it's the science. Right. And so we need a free space where people form their own judgments about what is healthy, what is not healthy, what to them is the truth might be different for what the truth is to someone else. Now, what people will say is, well, what what do you do then, Robert, when you have a situation where urgent emergency action is needed, okay? And what I have said, okay, getting into the COVID thing, is that the COVID situation never demonstrated that level of urgency. And if it had, everybody, if if the situation had ever been as urgent as it, as it was presented as being, 98% of the population would have gone along with it. It's just like, you know, if you had a, a gas main break in a neighborhood here in Viroqua and people could smell that gas, like nobody would be like, hey, I think you're making it up. Like, people would get the hell out of there, yeah, and yeah. the police wouldn't have any trouble evacuating yeah, they people. they would have known. That it would be done. obvious. But in COVID, it was actually never really transparent to the vast majority of the population that the situation was as dire as to require the kind of mandates and lockdowns that were being imposed. And therein lay the problem that whatever it was, 40% of the population, whatever, said, you know, I don't get it. And they have the right to say that, you know, in my opinion, you can't impose on people if they're having significant doubts just because you disagree with them. You, you don't have the right to impose your worldview on them. That's my opinion. So thus, it would not be something that a healthy culture would do to then suppress certain ideas that aren't a part of the mainstream science or fact check them or even... If certain procedures are given towards COVID, they get, you know, hospitals get tons of money for like a, you know. Correct, correct. We're, that's the government influencing culture in a really unhealthy way. Now, in, in a healthy culture, like let's, let's just go back to the education example, for example. Let's just say we let anybody start a school and yet we also covered the cost. So let's just say there was a mechanism. This is how it should be in a threefold society that there's equal access to any school of your choice, any family, right? Because equal access is extremely important when it comes to education. But anybody can start a school, right? We're not going to highly regulate who can start schools. Now, this would terrify some people. However, would there be some bad schools? Absolutely. And you know what? the parents would figure that out very quickly and they would pull their schools out and those bad schools would 
close down. And it's the same in medicine. If you've got some really lousy practitioners or, you know, people who are promoting things that in the end don't work, it's going to be found out. It's, it's going to come to light through a cultural process. Right. And you can't prevent that. You can't say, well, but somebody could be hurt in that cultural process. Some child might attend a bad school for one year. Sorry, that's better than the other option, which is to somehow some arbitrary state tyranny over the cultural life, in my opinion. Right on. So we don't, we got about, what, six minutes left. How do we create a healthy culture here? You, you said here in Viroqua, here in the Driftless, um, you said something like common. What, what, I was in that workshop that Robert was referring to, and a cool, exciting idea that they said was where are the points where cultures like come together? And one of them that you guys said was Nelson's agriculture. Right? <laughs> well, someone someone who was Somebody. in the workshop said that. So we were thinking like Nelson's Cafe or something? <laughs> <laughs> they said like Nelson's hardware store is where all the different cultures meet. And then someone said, yeah, let's create a Nelson's Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> but basically the whole idea was uh, creating places where cultures can come together. Right? Yeah, and different. where we can learn about how other people experience life. I mean, I don't know about you. Like I'm so curious about the Amish. Like I'd love to know more what, how they experience life, what their belief systems are. Um, I'm also curious about teenagers here in Viroqua. I don't have a lot of contact with that age group. I'd love to go to an event where I could just hear how do different teenagers experience their lives? Like, we don't have enough venues where people meet people and groups that aren't already part of their daily mm-hmm. life experience. And so, and again, as I said earlier, if we don't get to know these other groups, you know, whether they're conservative Christians or, you know, people practicing Buddhism, whatever, if we don't get to know them, we tend to be a little fearful of them. And we don't know whether we want them to have cultural freedom. Which that leads to like hate or like or yeah. that misunderstanding leads to like thinking that they're wrong or dangerous or whatever correct you know um so likewise people of color i mean there's not a lot of people of color here but wouldn't it be great to have an evening where we could hear what's it like to be a person of color here um but so that's just one thing we talked about in that workshop was how can culture begin to see itself better who is actually here? Who's creating this culture? I mean, I'll just give you another example. I was just at the 4-H fair. I had never been to the 4-H fair. And, I, of course, I'm an animal person. I love, you know, the animals. And, of course, well, what did I notice? There's no Amish there. Like, the Amish are a big part of the farming community, but they have, like, no presence that I could see at the 4-H fair. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to think about, well, how could we take that fair? How could that fair have more opportunities for the diverse cultural groups in this community to show up there? If that was a goal. Or maybe there's other kind of events where this culture could see itself better. Who's here? Who's here with us in the room, so to speak? So we're wanting to actually recognize all the contributing players of the culture basically, wanting them to come forth so we can see it. I think so. I think that's a longing in human beings mm-hmm. to, to build relationships with people outside of their, their own um, class or and then race just, or culture. 
and then just having that general curiosity of like, what are these people doing? Maybe, maybe I could learn something from them. Like just having that curiosity. I think so. I mean, also there's obviously tense issues. Like I said during COVID, like, gosh, we really need a place where the anti-maskers and the maskers can come together and have a robust debate on friendly terms, you know, on civil terms. Like everybody is so afraid to get in the same room and talk. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this before. I'm a big fan of an organization called Braver Angels, which helps people come together and debate charged topics in a civil way. And I think this is so important. The interesting thing is it's a cultural capacity, you could say, the capacity for civil conversations, without which our democratic institutions are going to fall apart. Like, So this is a role of culture, I think, is to develop the capacities that are also needed by our government. And we need those opportunities. Right on. Um, well, do you want to, to close this up, do you want to tell us a little bit about, tell them, the listeners, a little bit about the group that's just formed here in Roqua? Well, we had a workshop about three weeks ago now on um, social threefolding, and um, my colleague Seth Jordan and I uh, uh, kind of offered the possibility, what if we began a working group to explore how could we bring the ideas of social threefolding to the to the driftless region um and um so there is a group that's formed that's meeting once a week and then we're going to have larger meetings on a quarterly basis and i would just say if anybody's interested in these ideas or you're intrigued or you want to talk more um feel free to get in touch with me um i'm not totally sure yet what will be the outcome of this work we've We've generated a lot of interesting ideas, such as you know, creating a chamber of culture <laughs> to go along chamber with chamber of culture to yeah. go along with the chamber of commerce <laughs> and have um, and that have the people from different cultures actually show up to some of these meetings, you know, where important decisions are being made. Yeah, correct. I mean, I've already this has already like wet my appetite. I've been at some city council meetings and have weighed in on some issues there. I think. Um, I think the irony is this emphasis on culture could reawaken people's desire to participate in democratic processes as well, because there is a there is a cultural dimension to that, you know, to decision making that happens um, in governmental bodies, um, just as there's a cultural dimension to the to the economic life. So. Anyway, we're trying to get something started. It's kind of new and ambitious, something like it has never quite been done before, even though there's been a lot of threefolding work done. So yeah, feel free to contact me if anyone's interested. Awesome. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing these awesome ideas. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna um we're gonna have another show about this here in a couple of months and we'll we'll get more into the political realm and the economic realm at that. But thanks for coming on, Robert. You're listening to 919 WDRT Radio Free Space Viroqua and this is the Conscious Bro Show. This is Conscious Bro out. If you'd like to contact me and learn more about social threefolding, please send me an email at robert.carp. That's K-A-R-P. It's like the fish, but with a K. Robert.carp at newspiritventures.com. That's newspiritventures.com. Thank you.